0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney, Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, and today I'm here with Matthew Butterick. Hi, Matthew. Hi, good afternoon. We're here to talk about your work, not only as an attorney, but you've written a book called Typography for Lawyers Essential Tools for Polished and Persuasive Documents. I have the second edition, 2015. Is that the most recent edition? Yes, it is. Awesome. So I bought your book about two years ago. I think I bought it on Amazon, but I understand it's also available at Thomson Reuters and other outlets too.
0: I thought you were going to say you bought it at a garage sale. <laughs> bought a new copy. Wonderful. Thank you.
1: I did. And I have quoted you in, in a couple of um, continuing ed conversations about your conversation about attention and how valuable it is to keep the attention of the reader. I found that really good stuff. But now more recently, I thought, man, I need to take this more seriously and methodically and chew through it because what caused my new epiphany of how important this is, you have an example of a before and after of emotion in your book before you apply some of your techniques and then after. And it's night and day. It's night and day. So I did that on one of my own motions that I recently filed in court. And I thought, man, this is stunning. This is really different. It's so much more fun to look at. I wonder if it is more persuasive. And even if it's 1% more persuasive, that might be worth doing. It might be worth doing the work.
0: It's always been one of my messages with this material is that I don't want to be ever be seen as the, you know, the font police or something where I'm trying to win people over by you know, grabbing them by the lapels and you know breathing upon them the hot stinky garlic breath of typography. That's not how it works. It's an education program and what I'm trying to do is as you say, put the material out there And you're going to take it up as you progress. You know, everybody has their own learning curve. And I think that's the nice thing about it is that you pick it up the first time and there's things that you can say, okay, I see the value of this. But then, yeah, it starts to seep into your brain and you go back later. Maybe it's months, maybe it's years. And you say, huh, now I'm I'm receptive to more of the message. And it just kind of keeps growing like that. I think it's a nice aspect of this material.
1: You know, I've stuck with you, even though... I don't know what Miss Eckert would say about you. She was my typing teacher back, you know, 40 years ago, who taught me to use two spaces after a period. But I know that's one of your rules. You know, you have some rules that are suggestions and some rules that are ironclad. Could you start us off with that one?
0: The reason I start the book with the two spaces thing is not because two spaces per se is so important, cuz certainly there are plenty of lawyers still doing it that way. The point is to get lawyers into this principle that I introduce early in the book, which I think is really the most important part of the book, and it's sneaky. And here's what it is the principle that we are professional publishers, right? We're writers, but we're also publishers. We're taking our documents all the way to the end and delivering it to our readers. And as such, we should hold our typography to the standards of professional publishers. That's the key principle I lay out at the beginning. And when I do that, I do it in a calm way, almost like a a magician just showing, you know, fanning the deck in front of you. You don't really think I'm up to anything, but then I am up to something because now I'm going to start rolling out these rules. So I want to put people to a choice very early in the book. Either they believe in this principle or they don't. If they don't believe that lawyers should be held to the standards of professional typography, that's cool, bro. Get out of here. Like, there's nothing here for you in this book. You're going to find it a bore. But for the rest of you, if you do believe this principle, and I hope you do because it's true, then you know this is where you start your journey. Is starting to, as you say, wrap your brain around, even if Miss Eckert from 40 years ago said a different thing.
1: You stated, we, lawyers are part of the biggest publishing industry in the United States. But we don't seem to treat our typography like we are. And I found that your other subversive message is that we seem to not think that we have choices in a lot of these things. And yet if we stop and think about it, there's other ways to do things. And they're all compliant with the rules too.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. That's absolutely true. What the funny thing is that I started this whole project when I was not too far out of law school And, you know, for those listening, if you can remember what it's like to be just out of law school, I was really afraid of messing everything up, right? So as a a new lawyer, I looked up everything, right? If somebody says, oh, file a document, it's like, well, I'm going to go read all the rules. So suddenly I became the only lawyer I knew that had actually read in my state, the California Rules of Court recently. The rules keep evolving and they're amended and changed. And lawyers keep, keep filing the same documents the same way. And we could ask why that's so. I, I mean, maybe it's because there's a certain attachment to safety, like, oh, well, this worked for my you know, Aunt Jenny, who was a lawyer in 1976, and I'm just copying her. But again, if you go and you look at the rules, you, you'll find not as much as legislated as you think. And I've never recommended that lawyers use the, how shall I say, the flexibility in those rules just to goof around, like, Fonts for fonts' sake it's not like that at all. It's something different, which is that the rules don't describe the entire formatting of a document. They leave a bunch of decisions to you. So you have to step forward and, and make decisions, just like you have to had to make decisions about you know, what arguments to make in your brief. This is just another decision you need to make as a lawyer. So I think uh, getting lawyers to see this as part of their advocacy, again, not the most important, not even 10%, maybe not even 5%, maybe <laughs> it was just a couple percent. But wherever you put the percent, it is part of your advocacy, and it requires that moment of reflection. How do I want to render my argument into words, into pages?
1: What if by doing it really well, making it beautiful, it decreases the cognitive load of a judge reading your pleading? What if it increases your chance of prevailing by 1% and then you do it 500 times per year that you file something? That sounds like a worthy project.
0: Sure. As some of your listeners may know, the Fifth Circuit adopted my equity font a couple years ago as their official font for opinions, which was just one ingredient in a larger redo of their whole opinion format. And Judge Don Willett wrote a a piece in the Texas Bar Journal about the whole process. And to me, it was really interesting because he depicts it as this panel of judges here at the Fifth Circuit, really reflecting on their role as, hey, we're public servants. We are now the public's conduit for this material. We should put in the extra effort to make sure that our you know, opinions on the outside. You know, the design of them reflects all the work and, and effort on the inside, so to speak. And so, I thought that was a real nice, uh, just endorsement for the idea that this stuff can make a difference. But it's okay; typography can continue to be my secret weapon and the secret weapon of the lawyers who discover it. And you know, it's you talk about the example of court briefs. That's just the most constrained document that most lawyers work on, specifically because it's always going to be constrained by you know whatever local rules, uh, court rules, et cetera. But there's so many other documents that lawyers make. And the compliments that I get from lawyers, you know, it's all over the place. Sometimes they get compliments from judges and opposing counsel, but they're getting compliments from their clients too on, you know, correspondence and memos and so on. And they just find that it brightens everybody's day because suddenly their work becomes a a source of pleasure. So good for them. I think that's a, a good thing for all of us.
1: Maybe this is a good time to ask you to give us a definition of typography and how it differs from the word font.
0: I think of typography as the visual component of the written word. And in my book, I talk about, I I distinguish text from typography right text is just the words I want to order pizza tonight they' coming out of my mouth that's just a text but once we put those words to a surface right if we put them on paper or paint them on a sign now we've got to deal with typography because we're making that text visual and as far as fonts you know I am interested in fonts because I have a long-standing work as a type designer over the last 30 years but fonts are just one component of typography if you just want to keep using Times New Roman, I say, keep using it. I consider typography to encompass all the visual decisions we make about how the document looks. So it's not just font choice, it's font size, it's the margins, it's the spacing between the lines, it's all the other little typographic details. And they all come together to create the impression of the overall document. Um, the one thing that I have been an, an advocate for, it, I've been less successful on this one, which is trying to promote courts abandoned page counts and go over to word counts, I think that that is a big hobble to good typography because as long as you have briefs denominated in page counts you're always going to have to have strict formatting right otherwise everybody's words per page is going to be different whereas if you go over to word count then the sort of specifics of you know font choice and font size and so on all become flexible everybody's just going to work up to a word count and certain courts have gone over to word counts and I commend them but many many more have not
1: I just spoke to a an attorney who indicated that, well, there had been some changes to the Missouri Supreme Court, which used to have a strict rule on double spacing. Everything. Titles, block quotes, footnotes. It was extremely ugly. And uh, they've changed over. And part of the problem is they were having people trying to jam things into smaller fonts and into the footnotes that should have been in the body and all kinds of tricks. And it was a matter of fairness. of so trying to be fair to not let anybody get an advantage. But I, I think you're right about the if you just go to word count and then that's fair, right? Everybody gets the same number of words.
0: I think so. But at the same time, however, I always want to be clear. I have been clear in my books and I'm always clear. Judges get the last word when we're speaking about court documents. Like what the typography they want is the correct typography. The other one that comes up sometimes is line spacing. This is another one that people get really wrapped around the axle because I talk a lot about the idea of accurate line spacing, right? When we talk about double spacing or single spaced lines, what do we mean? Double spaced lines means twice the point size, okay? this whole idea of double line spacing comes from the typewriter. And if, since you had Ms. Eckert, you remember that when you would turn the platen, what is the cylinder that's Ooh, called? Clap. You know what I mean? Yeah, when you turn yeah. it vertically on a hmm. typewriter, you can only move it in certain increments. You can only move it a line at a time. So double line spacing is click, click, two turns of the cylinder. Now the Microsoft Corporation came and messed up the entire notion of this because they put in, Word, uh, Microsoft Word when you select double line spacing, it actually does this sort of funny computation based on the, you know, internal metrics of the font. So actually if you change the font, what double line spacing means will change as well. You know, plenty of lawyers have often suggested to me, well, we should adopt Microsoft Word's interpretation as the standard. And I said, well, that's terrible for two reasons. One, it isn't a standard because it changes from font to font. How can you call it a standard? Thing one. Thing two, if we say that we're going to defer to the makers of some commercial software, we're basically saying to get access to the court and to file a correct document, you need to own this particular piece of software. I think that's terrible from a perspective of access to the courts.
1: You mentioned already that you are a font designer, and that caught my ear because I know a few font designers who actually have told me how difficult it is and how time consuming. Could you give us a sentence or two about how hard of an enterprise it is to design a font?
0: Well, for those who who think that yeah, font design is easy, I again I say step right up, my friend, give it a whirl, and then a couple of weeks later they come back defeated and ejected. I've been involved with type design for a very long time. My original education in typography kind of proceeded in parallel along two tracks, one of which was you know having a early Mac computer when digital page layout software was really starting to uh, desktop publishing as it was called back then. So I had my Mac and it was very exciting to be able to manipulate all these things on screen. But the other thing that I was doing at the time, this is back in college, was learning a lot about typography in the letterpress printing shop that was in my college dorm. And for those listening, you know, letterpress printing is really the oldest printing technology that we have. It goes all the way back to Gutenberg, though movable type and so on, you know, originated in the Far East. Gutenberg was was not the actual originator of this technology, but it involves putting pieces of metal type in the bed of a press, and then you ink the type, and you roll over it a piece of paper with some pressure, and then you pull off the paper, and, and there you go. There's your printed image. So the point of this, though, is that I was involved not just in digital type, but also working with you know old foundry type and kind of studying the form. So my tastes in typography have been, I guess some could call them old fashioned or you could say traditional, but I really like that letterpress look. You know, when you pick up those old books and the type is just like, really you know dark on the page and intense and just makes a great impression so what does it take to design a font I think the first thing it takes is a point of view really is what is it I, I want to achieve the font that I did first which was for lawyers was called equity. That had kind of two goals, though. One was I heard a lot from lawyers that they wanted to use a font other than Times New Roman. They said, Matthew, what you have to understand is Times New Roman really fits a lot of words on the page. And I said, I do understand your pain because Times New Roman was originally developed for the newspaper the Times of London. And of course, newspapers love to fit more words on the page because newsprint is costly and it's economical to have a more compact face. But the problem is, and the lawyers are correct, that when you switch fonts, especially if you're in a a page limit jurisdiction, as many are, they're they're losing words per page and they don't like that. So I said, okay, we can come up with another font that has kind of the same layout characteristics as Times New Roman that fits the same number of words per page. So that was the first thing in my mind. And then the second thing in my mind was to go back and say, well, it'd be neat to kind of use an old letterpress face as a model for this. And that's when I kind of went back and did my research and ended up back in the 1930s, which is the era that Times New Roman originated. And the, the gentleman who was sort of instigated the Times New Roman project was uh, named Stanley Morrison. So Stanley Morrison was a very interesting figure because he was big into the whole idea of making typography economical. For him, it was as much financial as aesthetic. And then he did this other face called Earhart, which uh, he actually thought was superior to Times New Roman. But a lot of people forgot about this face. But I always uh, knew about it and liked it. And when I started looking at it, I said, you know, I think I could turn this into something that would be cool for legal writing. So that was kind of the origin of it. So, you know, type design was uh, an industrial process for most of its history. And people who, who look at this stuff and think, oh, this is just noodling around with the font menu on the computer. I understand why you might think that. But the history of printing machines is just fantastic. Because before we had computers, we had all these printing machines. I mean, for a long time, many of these machines were the most complicated and wonderful contraptions that humans had invented at that point. Because written language has been so critical to everything that happens in civilization. So a lot of effort was always put into making these machines better and faster. And indeed, when computers, even going back to the you know original Unix systems, were invented, some of the first software packages that were invented were typesetting packages because typesetting was still a pain. So uh, there's always been this kind of wonderful interplay between the cutting edge of technology and reproducing words on a page.
1: I should mention that these are licensed products, but it's a very reasonable price. If you love this font, which I do, you can use it forever right? It's one-time fee, about $119, and you can upload it onto all your computers and use it for whatever purpose. It's interesting to blow these letters up. For equity, for instance, I'm looking at the letter T thinking, man, that's beautiful. And of course, I I keep hearing in the back of my mind the lawyer going, okay, fine, it's beautiful, whatever, you know, I need to win cases. But, you know, again, what I keep thinking about that 1% rule. What if a judge is looking at this thinking, I'm kind of loving this. I don't know why. I kind of like this motion and I can't put my finger on why." (laughs) Isn't that worth it?
0: (laughs) I can't tell you that. And you're nice to mention the fonts. Look, as you said before, I have put the entire... Text of the typography for lawyers book online. You don't have to pay for it. And why is that? Because I'm a nice guy? No, not really, because I want these views to win. I don't want lawyers to say later on, uh, nobody told me or I didn't know how to go about it. It's right there. The whole text of the book is online. You can see whether it's for you or not. And then, yes, as you say, there are escalating steps of greater engagement. Maybe you will not become a font customer. And I don't just recommend, though I have my own fonts that I I market. I, I recommend fonts from plenty of other people too. You know, it's more about, again, just introducing lawyers to a world that is not familiar to them and probably should be. You know, you are writers, you are publishers, you are immersed in typography, whether you like it or not. So let me share a little bit with you, you know, and as for, as you say, the objection that, well, what does this have to do with winning the case? I mean, I don't know what to do with that anymore because I work in Los Angeles, and let me tell you, there seems to be no end of money that lawyers will spend on things that do not have anything to do with the practice of law. Right? I go into these buildings, right, with uh, you know guard dogs in the parking garage and these you know elevator attendants and these catered lunches. It's all very beautiful, but it has nothing to do. With the practice of law, so against that backdrop, it's hard for me to hear that considerations of typography are somehow incidental. I don't have time for them. I don't have budget for them. It pertains to your written output. So I'll just leave it at that. If you really think that you need the marble paneled bathroom to do your job, what can I say?
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, look at the lobbies of the law firms. You know, does that have anything to do with the arguments they will make at the uh, conference room table?
0: Well, I'm teasing a little bit, but it's also an analogous argument to typography, because why do lawyers pay top dollar for these buildings and these lobbies and so on? Because they want to make a good impression with clients. They want to make a good impression with the summer associates. You know, It's about the outward optics of the firm. Of course you invest in these things. So I, I'm teasing a little bit, but I'm kind of saying, if you're willing to have a fancy marble bathroom, surely you should be willing to have a fancy font. It's not even made out of marble.
1: <laughs> so um, we all have options. We don't think about it because we're in a hurry. And when we're in a hurry, we tend to want to just go to the end point and slap in that Times New Roman or the Arial font on a title. And I should mention for the, the listeners who can be the readers too, you can read along with us by looking at the sections of your book online. You give lists and suggestions. This is not just esoteric and you know, hand-waving. But you get really into the weeds and these lists are really useful. It might take a while to get through it. You might have to look at it carefully, take a few notes. But once you get through it and once you say, hey, I like these 12 things, they're yours forever. And you can create your own template based on those and off you go.
0: Well, this is a marvelous point and and I'm glad to have you as an acolyte for the typography army because this is something that I think really should always be amplified, which is you only have to do it once, right? You kind of spend a weekend or whatever it is. It just doesn't take that long to make some changes to your core template and then after that the price of good typography is Free, it's already done. And this is something else I put to lawyers. Like the cost of your bad typography is the same as the cost of the good typography, right? So why wouldn't you want to just again, you know, spend a little effort that once improve the typography in your document and get to enjoy it every time?
1: Let's talk about attention. And maybe I can just read a few quotes by you. Attention is the reader's precious gift to you. If you fail to be a respectful steward of that gift, it will be revoked. And once your reader revokes the gift of attention, you've achieved only the lowest form of writing. Yes, you scattered some words across the pages, but your reader has disappeared. And I thought, that's awesome.
0: You know, as a designer for a long time, I think of design as a way of, yes, smoothing the path of a message into the brain. And a lot of, you know, this book was very much influenced by Brian Garner's books. I just love what he has to say about like legal writing doesn't have to be, Stodgy and bloviating and boring. It's like we can make it short and punchy. All we have to do is want it enough. And his idea that we actually benefit, right? This idea that somehow filibustering, writing to the end of every possible page limit is the best possible advocacy. And he really kind of runs in and, and upends that whole idea and scatters the pieces on the floor and goes for a completely different idea, which is what if we just tell people up front what the issues in the case are? Like, why don't we just organize things really clearly and make Make our writing really fun and interesting to read i think that's a great message and i just think that an analogous argument could be made with typography again it's not as important as the stuff that brian garner talks about and about making your argument and you know actually rendering it in words but it's this thing that can have complementary meaning that can reinforce the beauty of your argument and yeah, you know, just make it incrementally easier for your readers. Because I think to your point about judges are, you know, tired. <laughs> it's like every reader is tired, you know, and especially in in the law, whether it's a judge or opposing counsel or whoever's reading your stuff, has a pile that's a mile high of other things that they need to read. Yeah, they're sick of it. They're sick of it. I can guarantee you that. There's just nobody who's like opening your brief is like, oh. What I hope most is that this person uses every square inch of the page and makes it as annoying as possible. (laughs) Nobody is asking for that. And yet we see uh, what we have in the practice of law. So I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think that idea of trying to almost humanize it, I think it is humanizing it because we're respecting the time and attention. We are showing respect for the person on the other end. We're saying, you know what? (laughs) You're busy. You're tired. I'm going to get to the point and make it worth your while.
1: I've used Brian Garner's ideas all my life and my writing got much better for it. I summarize it in my own head as get to it. Just get to it. But also experiment. It's so easy to think you don't have choices when you do.
0: You know, it's it's funny when lawyers think that this material is too complex or technical. My mother in law is a huge word perfect fan. And that's the reason that I still have word perfect tips in the book, is purely for my mother in law. So <laughs> but Eric, have you met any word perfect fans? You mean in the last two decades? Yeah, in the last two decades. Because if you've ever met one and asked why they like WordPerfect, there's one answer that they always give. Do you know what it is? No. It's reveal codes. All your WordPerfect users are like, yes, he knows about reveal codes. Reveal codes is this thing that WordPerfect could do where essentially you're typing and it looks like a normal word processor. But when you reveal codes, it's almost like peeling up the surface and you get to peer into the code underneath that makes up the word processing document. And you can actually go and manipulate it at a more granular level. Microsoft Word does not let you mess with the underlying code. But I just think it's great that at some point in not so distant history lawyers are really into messing around with you know reveal codes now it's like oh i don't know about i don't know about using something other than the times new roman i don't know so i say embrace your inner nerd especially if you're an appellate lawyer i mean come on
1: <sighs> let's talk about a few of your key rules you say get the body text right before you worry about the rest of the document what do you have in mind there
0: I try to point out that this idea of body text, simple idea, it's just the main content of the document, whatever the document may be, right? It's a letter, it's the body of the letter, it's a brief, it's the, you know, the main text of the brief. I think there can be a tendency sometimes, however, when lawyers are thinking about typography, they pick up a letterhead and they start messing around with, oh, I'm like, where does my name go and where does my address block and my email? Or when they're doing a brief, They get stuck like messing around with the caption page. You know, you kind of want to do it the opposite way because the impression your document is going to make is mostly dependent on how the body text looks. Why? Because most of the document is made of body text, right? It's just the truth. So I say, don't worry about all the little sort of fiddly details at the beginning. Work out the body text. Make sure it looks really cool. And then once it's solid, kind of go back and deal with the smaller bits that, you know, like the caption page or the parts along the edge of the letterhead and, and so forth.
1: So I know in the, in therapy they say, never use the word never or always, but here you used it, never underline. Talk about that.
0: In general, I, I one of the things I'm trying to pry lawyers away from, are the typewriter habits. And I'm not the first person in this genre. In the early Mac era, there was a very excellent selling book called The Mac Is Not A Typewriter, which was exactly the same message and basically saying to the people of 1986, hey, it's a computer, don't keep doing all the little dumb shortcuts and hacks that we had to do when we had typewriters. Nevertheless, here in 2022, we're still doing a lot of those things. And one of them is underlining. Why does underlining exist? Because you know, usually in old-fashioned, like letterpress typography, historic typography, you would use italics or boldface. Of course, typewriters don't have any of those things. So if you want to emphasize something, your only option was really to backspace and then draw underscores below it. So that's the entire origin of underlining. So the reason I want lawyers not to use it, it's like, because you have a computer, because you have italic styles, you have bold styles. And uh, one of the worst offenders on this, by the way, is the blue book, which I think is still recommending underlining. And by the way, that's also why uh, some people say, what about hyperlinks? shouldn't we underline hyperlinks? Like Again, the reason that the early internet settled on underlining for hyperlinks was the same thing. There weren't really fonts available and it just carried forward. Though there was bold and italic, it's like, well, we need one more thing for hyperlinks. So there it was, but um, don't underline, there's no need for it. And by the way, I think this is another, it kind of shades into another area where lawyers seem to lack self-restraint sometimes, which is in the area of emphasis. Like lawyers, like they get their head of steam going and they're like, oh, this whole argument is really important. But now here comes this extra important part. Well, I'm going to make it bold. (laughs) It's like a teenage rock and roller. It's like just keeps wanting to crank the volume higher and higher. There's no end to that arms race. And in my book, I really try to coach people. It's like you got to get out of that whole world. Bold and italic have their place, changes of font size have their place, but you can do so much just by adding white space to the page. If you want to emphasize a heading, Put space above it, just leave blank space. It's amazing what it will do. It's like the role of you know, silence in a symphonic work. It's, it really grabs your attention because it's the absence of sound. It's the same thing on the page. You just let it be blank and suddenly as soon as the you know the next heading appears, it really makes more of an impression. So again, I am very much an opponent of, if you will, sort of excessive typographic decoration. I want lawyers to use less of it. And the most of all, I want them to use fewer caps. And this surprises people too, because you started off our conversation by asking about two spaces. It's like, oh, you start your book with that. It must be really important to you. That's a question that's been put to me over the years. And I say, no, it's not really important to me. But if I were crowned the king of typography and I was allowed to wave my wand, that isn't even the thing I would fix. The thing I would fix is the overuse of all caps. And lawyers love all caps, right? They just think, man, I did bold. I did italic. I did underline. What have I got left? Oh, I'm going to make it all caps but we're not acclimated to reading all caps we're acclimated to reading upper and lower case and we have been for hundreds of years and it's just it's the idea that you're now engaging in self-defeating typography right which by that i mean you have this segment of text that you want people to pay more attention to but paradoxically you are making it harder to read, and thus increasing the chance that this reader, and to go back to your point, this reader whose attention has already been strained by everything else that's happened in their day and week, you're just making it more likely that that reader is going to skip right over. So I just think it's the worst legal typography habit that exists. <laughs> well, so
1: your job apparently is to throw all of our favorite toys under the trash can. Yeah. And one of those, you say, use centered text sparingly. Could you talk about that?
0: Well, again, Eric, did you find that you were using centered text more than before you opened my book and I ruined it for you? No,
1: you've become my conscience. You're that you know, like the cartoon <laughs> character. who sits on my shoulder and nags me.
0: I think, yeah, I think I don't get enough credit for Eric. How much of my advice is really about making things more sedate and peaceful and really not messing with the program? On the contrary, I'm trying to rewind typography, again, not in a, in a purely nostalgic or backward looking way, but just the idea that readers have certain expectations for how long form text should look which we see when we read a, a well-designed newspaper like the New York Times or the Guardian or a well-designed magazine like The Economist. Like These lessons are embedded in those. I just want things to be peaceful and mellow. Again, centered text, it's easy to do in a word processor. And again, I say, what, for a line or two, it's fine. But when you're taking an entire paragraph and centering it, you're just kind of messing with the way people's eyes move down the page. It's just annoying. It's annoying and it doesn't have to be.
1: Let me ask one more thing before wrapping up the mixing of fonts. Somewhere I got it in my head. It was after Ms. Zucker because all we had is typewriters back then. I got it somewhere in my head that the titles should be a different font than the body text. And then you have some comments about mixing of fonts.
0: Well, as my earlier comment, I think that, again, mixing fonts, if you want to do it, if you want to have a different font for your headings, that's fine. But it's also okay not to. Again, I'm not in favor of excessive complexity, though I have been criticized by design people in the past for my love of fonts. I remember when that first edition of Typography for Lawyers came out, people said, why does he use so many fonts in this book? Because I wanted it to be fun and, and engaging and kind of reminiscent of certain school of, I don't know, American typography that I like, which is a bit eclectic. But in a legal document, do I recommend that? No. I mean, again, you can do it, but I don't think it's mandatory. I think as with white space, I think sometimes people new to typography underestimate how far they can get with just a few tools. I mean, I think if if you sat me down and said I had to make you know, typeset an entire brief with nothing but 12 point Times New Roman, I couldn't even have italic or bold, I could still do it. There's no problem working in limitations. So I, I think to go back to your point, it's not mandatory and that there's other ways to bring emphasis to headings.
1: Well, thank you for joining us for this session. This has been great. And I hope the listeners do check out your work. You know, for $40, it is big bang for the buck there. It's easily available. And it's a beautiful book. As you you know point out, this is your own font that you use to create your book.
0: Thank you. And you know what? I, again, if you find it at a garage sale, it's okay. I would rather have the book going into the hands of somebody who might now discover it. But you're right. And again, I think the most important point, the entire text of the book is online at typographyforlawyers.com. The entire text. There's no paywall. You can get off this podcast right now. You can click over there and you can be immersed in this material and you can start to see if it's for you.
1: By the way, I did a a Google search for typography for website design and there's like 70 million hits. If I do typography for lawyers, there's about 500,000 hits and I went through the first five pages. It's all about your book and your ideas or people commenting about your book or reviewing
0: your book. The pleasure of this project is that lawyers are not just the biggest publishing industry in the country, as you mentioned, and I cite in the book, but the most consequential. I mean, the writing that we do affects people's lives. And I think if any writing deserves extra attention with typography, it is this writing. So I hope that my contribution to the genre, I'm not the first. I won't be the last, but I hope most of all that it's the beginning of a journey for folks, not the end. So I hope that it continues to be a source of pleasure.
1: Well, again, thank you for joining us. It's been delightful.
0: Thank you, Eric.
1: All right. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. We'll see you next time.
0: The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.